America's an idea. An idea stronger than any army, bigger than any ocean. The single greatest nation in the history of the world, and the best is yet to come. From the U.S. Embassy in Dublin, this is The Diplomatic Pouch. I'm Dermot Keane from the Public Affairs Office at the Embassy. And I'm John B. Murphy. Welcome to our new podcast series, which will cover a range of topics and bring exciting, interesting guests to you. These first few episodes will cover all things election 2020, as we seek to explain to you how the US electoral process works. In this episode, we will focus on campaigning during a pandemic. So JB, we are days away from a presidential election, but that's not the only thing Americans are voting for on November 3rd. That's correct, Dermot. American citizens will not only cast their votes for the office of the President of the United States, but they will also vote for representatives for the US Congress, as well as state and local officials. I should also add that at the time of this recording, a tally from the US Elections Project has estimated that more than 70 million Americans have already cast their ballots in this election so far. So that's over half the total turnout of the 2016 election. Okay, so lots of Americans have voted, but this really has been a campaign like no other. COVID-19 has meant that traditional methods of campaigning have been upended. Tell me who you've been speaking to. Well, firstly, Dermot, I spoke to Leslie Marshall, radio talk show host and Fox News contributor, about what she sees as the primary challenges with campaigning at the moment. Going out and meeting the people, answering the questions, doing town halls, doing rallies is essential. Look, our nation is very divided. Most people have made up their mind. While we're doing this, most people have actually already, or millions of people have already voted uh, because of uh, mail-in voting. Um, but in, in the past, um, you didn't, you didn't have as many people voting early or as many states are giving that option as now due to COVID. So with regard to the presidential candidates, they, they can't really connect with the voters. And, and that might make it harder for those undecided because in this election, as it's been for a few election cycles, it is that sliver of voters that will determine who the next president is. So what we're taking from Leslie is that it's much more difficult now for candidates to connect with voters because there can't be as many in-person events and it's really undecided voters who are affected by this. That's correct, Dermot. But let's spare a thought for the tens of thousands of candidates that are running in state and local elections who are trying to connect with their voter base. And with that in mind, I next spoke to Amanda Littman. She's the co-founder and executive director of Run For Something, which is an organization that supports and recruits young candidates. I think the place where this is really hard is for local campaigns, which is most of the races in the United States. Um, you know, Run For Something is working with hundreds of candidates on the ballot this year, 525 to be exact. And for most of them, their path to victory is knocking on doors or in the before times would have been knocking on doors. The average run for something candidate in the past knocked between five and 10,000 doors themselves, not including their campaigns, their volunteers or their supporters. 
And that's how you win a local race because the scale of them means that it's not usually efficient, nor do they have enough money to run TV ads or run radio ads. They probably did digital ads. They probably did uh, maybe stuff in the newspaper. They did a lot of press, but they weren't doing um, TV ads in the same way because for a school board or a city council race, it probably doesn't make sense cost-wise. So Amanda, what are the candidates doing in place of the traditional knock-on-doors method of campaigning? They're not doing events in the same way, which is good. They shouldn't, as we have seen, these events can become super spreader events very quickly. Um, but And that has been a quick shift. And the transition from really not knocking doors, which very few candidates are doing, um, to putting all of that effort into online organizing, uh, meaning text messages, phone calls, emails, Slack groups, WhatsApp groups, uh, Zooms, uh, Instagram Lives, and all other ways of digital communication have become a primary focus. Um, so most of our local candidates have transitioned into a place where they're doing uh, Facebook Lives every Friday night answering questions from their constituents, where they're dropping into neighborhood groups on Facebook or um, joining the mutual aid networks that have popped up over the last eight months within each relative communities. Um, they're using Nextdoor, which is an app that's really driven by neighborhood communities uh, to connect with voters. Um, some are still doing lit drops, meaning like passing out literature at people's homes. Uh, some are doing socially distanced uh, in-person events. Um, but for the most part, at least on um, the candidates that we work with, are trying to model good <laughs> public safety and public health behavior. So are wearing masks, keeping a distance, not breaking people's quarantines, and um, trying to build that relationship with voters in other ways without getting anyone sick. So that's all well and good, but what about my granny? <laughs> no, seriously, what about people who may not be as tech savvy? Well, first of all, your granny is a lovely lady that's well-informed and engaged on all these issues. But you're absolutely right, Dermot. Some voters may not be as familiar or comfortable using some online platforms. Mm -hmm. And that's an issue I raised with Amanda. Um, well, I think, especially for seniors, um, a lot of them are on Facebook. <laughs> um, in fact, more seniors than young people are on Facebook. More seniors than young people use email. Um, so it's actually not as hard as you'd imagine. Uh, but I also think the reality is, is, I would object with the premise a little bit. We know that in this case, the biggest voting block or the biggest potential voting block is actually millennials and Gen Zers, um, people under the age of 40. And that's really exciting. Uh, and I think we're gonna see record turnout from those age groups, from those generations um, that are going to decide this election, which uh, is, is fantastic and really exciting. <laughs> So Amanda, is the participation and the level of engagement with these events encouraging? Yeah, our candidates have found a lot of success with it. Um, it is definitely, I think, a, something that is really pandemic specific. <laughs> um, and it's also community specific uh, for people who have been locked in their homes for, you know, in some places the last eight months. Um, it's something to do. It's also a way to facilitate community. People feel really isolated right now, um, not having seen their family or their friends in some cases since March, and that's really uh, lonely. So being able to jump on these Facebook Lives or these, you know, these Zoom chats, um, 
it gives you a sense of being part of something bigger, which is what a good campaign event does. It makes you feel like you're part of a movement. I wonder, is there a difference, JB, between how the two parties have been approaching the campaign? Who else have you been speaking to? Indeed, there does seem to be a level of disparity in the way the two presidential candidates are campaigning. So on that topic, I spoke with Irish writer and broadcaster Marion McKeown, who is on the ground crisscrossing between the swing states. I'm attending a lot of Trump events because there haven't been any Biden events, really. Uh, They're all virtual. They're all online. So if you want to get out and talk to people, uh, Donald Trump, Junior, Eric Trump, Mike Pence, Karen Pence, Lara Trump. It's kind of a Trump family business operation. They're spread out all over the swing states and they're doing two, three, four rallies a day, some of them. By contrast, there are very few Democratic events. Barack Obama had a big event in Philadelphia uh, on, sorry, I'm losing track of what day it is, on Wednesday night. um, And that was a drive-in. It was well attended, but I think, and it is, a criticism I would have of the Biden um, campaign, they need to have more surrogates out. It doesn't matter if you're only allowing 20 people to attend. When you do local events, it filters down to the local media and local people feel that you are paying attention to them. So it is really evident, JB, from Marion's experience that local matters. Now, Marion has been all over the US in the last few weeks, mainly in swing states like Florida, Iowa and Ohio. So she's been getting a good sense of what's happening on the ground. One thing she mentioned to you was an app the Trump campaign have for rallies. Yes, Dermot, she mentioned the Trump campaign app and she said that was very informative for uh, updates and information on rallies. And I believe the Biden campaign has something similar. But Amanda Littman also talked to me about ways in which candidates are trying to engage with the younger audience tiktok rules um yeah i love tiktok i think tiktok has been a factor not um necessarily driven by the candidates but by driven by users which um i was just la- this morning and last night watching um aoc congressman ocasio cortez did a video game uh, live stream on twitch with a bunch of uh gamers She had 400,000 people watching the live stream at a single moment, plus probably another four or 500,000 watching across various other streams. It was almost all young people. It was almost all people who probably wouldn't have participated in a political rally or attended something like that. But over the course of two hours, she, Congresswoman uh, Ilhan Omar and the gamers, the, the Twitch streamers, while they played this video game and while people watched, talked about voting, talked about making plans to vote, talked about the need for universal health care, talked about how the electoral college works. Um, that clips from that stream are then posted to YouTube, are then all over TikTok um, of teens and, and especially young women, but teens at large singing her praises of how cool it is to see a congresswoman, you know, playing the video game they play with their friends. So Amanda, how are the more seasoned, traditional, knock on doors, pound the pavement style candidates adapting to the online campaigning sphere? Um, I mean, the ones that are smart hire good staff or bring on good volunteers. But I will say it's less the mechanics of the communication tools and more that they're not as comfortable communicating authentically. 
Um, you know, you think about a 20 or 30 something candidate, or even a 40 something candidate, they're used to posting online about their life, to holding up a camera and taking a quick photo or, or, or streaming something. Um, you, there's a certain amount of fluency that comes to communicating online in a way that is authentic and true to who the candidate is. And I will say this is not true. There are certainly exceptions to this. You know, I think Senator Ed Markey in uh, Massachusetts is, is certainly one. Um, but generally, generally speaking, the younger generations and younger candidates, because they've grown up on the internet, um, are a little more native and are more fluent in the language of the internet which goes a long way towards cults creating interesting, engaging, and authentic content, which is ultimately what, what they're trying to do. Reports indicate that TV spending is up across all of the swing states, and you're even seeing Democrats now spending money in states that usually always go red. But what surprises me is that TV ad spending is still a thing in 2020. Surely the majority of funds would be or should be spent online. Yes, Dermot, and Leslie Marshall spoke to me about the role of traditional media during this pandemic. The role of media is huge. I mean, because uh, of a number of reasons. One, you have more people at home watching TV, right? So we have people watching TV before, but within certain windows because they were working. Well, now they're working from home. Um, so they have more access to that. Also, Americans get their news from various places. Um, they get, uh, it, it's not, you know, just the newspaper. It's not even just the, you know, six and 11 o'clock news as we, you know, have here on television. Um, but there are various news programs and news networks that are either reporting news or talking about the news 24-7. You also have online. You have Twitter. You have Facebook. You have Instagram, you have LinkedIn, um, you have TikTok even. TikTok was instrumental in a big hoax. They, they, you know, TikTok got a bunch of teenagers to buy tickets to a Trump rally that they were never showing up for, making people believe there are going to be, uh, you know, a million people there when it, when it was, you know, I think less than 5,000. Um, so the, the power of this is incredible. Um, it's also dangerous because... Um, for example, I, I'll post something on my Twitter page and it, literally I will get death threats and they, uh, people I think have lost the ability to discern between an opinion and fact. And the media is partially responsible for that. There you go. We've spoken to some really interesting people uh, for this podcast. I'm curious to see what your own take is on it, John. What do you make of campaigning in a pandemic? How difficult is it after listening to the experts and do you think it'll change this presidential election? I think we've certainly had interesting contributions there and interesting tidbits. Um, there's no doubt the pandemic has reshaped the art of campaigning in 2020. In four years time, all these candidates who wouldn't have adapted these techniques for maybe another four or eight years now know them today so they're going to be much better equipped going forward um, so it'll be interesting to see um, other candidates into the future so that's all the time we have on this episode tune into our next edition of the podcast which will look at the electoral college system 
I can't wait. Well, I hope you have answers for us on some of this stuff. I don't, but other contributors do. Good, good, because I know it's it's quite a complicated topic, but we'll try and break it down for you in the next episode. Thank you to our contributors on this episode of the podcast, Marion McKeown, Leslie Marshall and Amanda Littman. JB, you'll be back with us next time? Indeed. For now, take care. <laughs>